Good evening. It's good to see all of you. It's a pleasure uh, to have been in town for the last few weeks. And I think in that amount of time, I've forgotten how to preach. So, uh, you know, you, you just never know uh, what, what's going what's gonna to happen. Uh, our text tonight will be Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26. So you can turn there. Have you ever read a text and wondered why God wrote so much about so little? And, uh, and you, you read it and you think, well, that's, uh, that's, that's nice. And you wonder if you're supposed to get anything more out of it than just some historical uh, message. And uh, you begin to think, well, okay, uh, that, that was a nice story about Isaac. Let me uh, go on to chapter 27. And that's about it. I found myself over the years reading lots of texts like that, and I've learned that the biggest mistake that I can make is to think that there isn't some great message there. As a matter of fact, usually something greater than anything that I had ever thought about or considered before. And Genesis 26 to me is just that kind of text. There's a monumental message, and especially an important message for us today, and I think especially in regard to the things that we have dealt with for the last couple of years, and so I'd like to share that with you uh, this evening. Let's begin just with reminding ourselves a bit. Let me get you acquainted somewhat with the story uh, that that is given here. You will notice in 26 verse 1, the simple statement, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Please highlight that those words, and there was a famine in the land. How many times have you read something like that in the Old Testament? It's, it's, it's commonplace to us, isn't it? There was a famine in the land, and we sort of go, okay, yeah, there was a famine in the land. Whatever. Uh, actually, uh, when he says there's a famine in the land, it means that there's going to be people who are going to die. And we need to get that squarely in our minds. There's a famine in the land. And people are going to die. And if you think that that's not so, I would remind you that a number of years later when there is a famine in the land and Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to buy grain, Jacob's words are this, Why do you look at one another? Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Now what strikes me about all that, especially, and I think especially important for us, Jacob was a rich man. Jacob had plenty of money. But as I read in a book a number of years ago, you can't eat money. And you and I may have thousands upon thousands of dollars in a bank account and think, wow, you know, if worse comes to worse, we could just go buy some food. Not if you can't find the food. The money will do no good. There's a famine in the land. Death is knocking at the door. And not only that, but we need to realize too that when this famine takes place, that it can be bad enough that it can affect generations after them. 
even if the human beings in Isaac's family are able to survive the famine, they may lose flocks and herds and all kinds of livestock that would provide for the next generation as well as their own generation. This is a devastating point in time. And God intends for us to see the words, there's a famine in land and understand that there is death knocking at the door. Now, Isaac does something that Abraham did. Isaac is heading toward, heading toward Egypt. Now, we, we see, well, he goes to the Philistines, but that's the route that he's going to take. And it's quite evident that was his intention because in verse 2, we read, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, and but dwell in the land of which I tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you, uh, bless you for to you and to your offspring and I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father and I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and I will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments and my statutes and my laws. So here is God saying don't go down into Egypt. That is interesting because just like Abraham, Isaac's father, Egypt is usually a sure thing. If you have a famine in the land, the Nile River is the place to go because the Nile River is fed by the the snow-capped mountains of Ethiopia and it's almost always flowing. And if there's any place that you're going to be able to find grain, it's going to be down in Egypt. And so Egypt's the place to go. And God says, don't go to Egypt. I want you to stay right here and I want you to sojourn in the land of the Philistines. Um, Anybody want to do that? I'd like to think about that for a second because the Philistines aren't really, from what we read later on, they're not nice people. And, And so, Isaac, you're going to stay in this land. I want you to stay here. I'll be with you. No problem. Uh, and I want you to, to, to dwell here until it's all said and done. And, and, and that's that. Now, how much faith do you have to have if you are going to live among the Philistines and you are going to count on God to provide for you in the midst of a famine in which you have flocks and herds that you have to you have to feed and you have a large family that you have to feed and the most logical thing on earth is to go to Egypt because that's a sure thing that you're going to stay here we 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 tend not to appreciate that very much because we just go down to a local store um, you have noticed, as we all have, that you just don't go down to the local store lately, do you? We saw on the news the other night how people were complaining that oh, why Christmas gifts are all sold out on Christmas Eve. What's going on around here? Well, I guess those people never read, saw the news or sub something. <laughs> yeah, there's some problems in supply chain. I'm not worried about a Christmas gift. But Publix over here has just enough food at any given time to supply one day's food supply for just the people in the area. Just one day. And all it takes is a supply chain problem for that. And there's no food. This is a serious issue for Isaac. But he puts his trust in God and he says, okay, 
I'm not going to go down in Egypt. That's followed up by another thing that we learn about Isaac because the next text, when you get to verse 7 down through verse 10, we find out that all of a sudden uh, Isaac decides to pull the same thing that Abraham does. Well, I've learned from dad that when I'm scared to death that somebody's going to kill me and, and grab my beautiful wife, I'll just lie and say she's my sister. Uh, Abraham at least had a halfway right answer to that. Isaac doesn't even have close. You could have at least said she's my cousin. But he said, no, yeah, you know, that's, that's my sister. And you notice the words in when Abimelech calls him on the carpet about it at the end of verse 9. Isaac says, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Now you and I, wait, again, this is another matter in which we, we, we want to look at Isaac and go, come on, Isaac, are you kidding me? And yet, when I think about that, I think I, there's a lot of places in this country, there's a lot of inner cities in this country that we've seen on the news that are not safe. Would I take my wife and just walk through that part of that city and not think anything about it? No, I might be afraid somebody would kill me in order to get my beautiful wife. That would be a real concern. We don't think about the life and death situations that are real in these days. And Isaac has to deal with that. And yeah, his faith isn't real great at this particular point. He wavers a bit. But I want you to notice how God turns this around and provides for Isaac. Number one, he saves him and Sarah, uh, Sarah and uh, Rebecca from, uh, from, from Abimelech or from anything that would happen there. Number two, note, go on down to verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. And the Philistines are so upset about it, they turn around and they stop up all the wells that Abraham is, uh, Abraham uh, and Abraham's servants had dug in the days of Abraham. And so here is... Isaac just getting rich in the midst of the Philistines. And may I remind you, there's a famine in the land. And God provides so much that the Philistines are looking at this and they're envying him and they're thinking, what is going on around here? So much so that they have stopped these wells up. And then verse 19 says... Yeah, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water. That's the good well, a well of spring water. And then the herdsmen of Gerar, they quarreled about it, and they said, the water is ours. And so he called the name Essek because they'd contended with him. And so the, they dug another well in verse 21, and they quarreled over that one. And he calls it Sidna and said, well, okay, you can take that. And then verse 22, then he dug another well. And they didn't quarrel over that. And Isaac goes, well, cool. God's going to make me fruitful in the land. And, uh, and, and so uh, here is Isaac. Every time that he digs a well, they quarrel over it. And he, Isaac just goes, okay, here's. And he goes on, digs another one. 
And they quarrel. He hears, and, and he gets a third, and he finally gets one of them quarreling, and he goes, cool. God has finally given us a place where we can be fruitful on the land. Now, what's weird about this is after all of this, you have you have Abimelech saying, would you get out of here? We, we, we don't like you here. Back in verse 16, go away from us, for you're much mightier than us. And so Isaac departed, and that's when this well digging thing goes on all the way through here, and he finally finds a well that he can settle down and they can uh, be at peace. Look at verse 26. Uh, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar, from Azutha, Az, well, that place, his advisor in Philco, uh, and the commander of his army, they come, and Isaac said to them, Why have you come to see come to me? Because that you have hate me and have sent me away from you? <laughs> so here is Isaac getting all wealthy in the midst of the Philistines, and Abimelech says, You need to get out of here because you're driving us nuts and, 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 and you're you're just mightier than us, so just go away from us. We can't stand it. And so he goes away, goes through all this well digging thing, and then finally finds a place, and then Abimelech shows up and goes, Hi. And Isaac says, what's up? You don't like me. You didn't. You want me to go away from you, all of this. And here's what Abimelech says in verse 28. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us... And, and let us there, uh, and, and between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast. And they ate and drank. In the morning they rose up early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. And the same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they dug, and said, We have found water. Call the place Sheba, and later known as Beersheba. Now isn't that just a great story? You know what's notable about that story? Absolutely nothing. I mean, you know, we compare that story to David and Goliath or some of the great stories in the book of Judges. My dad used to go take us and take us to bed at night and he'd always tell us a Bible story. And he never told us the story about Isaac and a famine and a bunch of wells being dug. And at the end, they make peace and they have a big feast and voila. He never told me that story. And if he hadn't told me that story, I'd probably gone to sleep before the story was over. Because you're just like, what's up with that story? So let me note a few things that especially should strike us today and should be about us uh, today. The first principle I want you to see is a pattern that goes throughout this particular story. And it is a pattern that has happened in your life as well as in mine. And probably, if you're old enough, this pattern has happened a number of times. And if you're young enough... I want you to look forward to the pattern happening in your life as well. The first is the beginning. There was a famine in the land. In other words, there's a trial. Lives, our lives are filled with trials. Oh, how shocked we are when the trial comes. Isn't it the case? 
Oh, how shocked we are. What is going on around here? I was coasting quite well. I was doing what I wanted to do quite well. And suddenly something shocking happens to let me know that I am not in control of anything. There's a trial that takes place. And it's not a trial that is like, oh, wow, the air conditioner went out. This is a trial in which you cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. You feel like it's never going to end and you feel like it is the most devastating thing that could possibly happen in your life. And and everything in your life now is turned upside down. It is the same kind of thing as Isaac is, is approaching here. I'd like you to ask yourself the question. What if there were no groceries? I mean none in your house and none down the street for two weeks. Just two weeks. Two weeks. There's nothing. Everybody in the neighborhood, you're looking at each other, what are we going to do? What do you think would happen in this country? I'm scared to think what would happen after what's happened when we've eaten well during a virus. <laughs> two weeks, no food. What if the government announced in two weeks we will have food? For two weeks, there will be nothing. Freak out. Isaac is looking at a year. Isaac may be looking at two years because if there's a famine in the first year, it's going to affect the next year. It's going to affect the crops. It's going to affect everything around. Isaac is looking at that. Remember what Jacob said? You need to buy grain for us that we may live and not die. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It will have nothing to do with that. The first beginning is there will be a trial. You remember what Elihu said to Job? I think it's around chapter 34 of Job. He said this will happen two or three times in a person's life in order to bring his soul back from the pit. If you're young, you can expect a trial. If you're older, you've seen the trials and you're wondering, will there be another? I started counting. Has there been three yet? (laughs) He said two or three. Maybe has there been three yet? Can I be guaranteed there won't be another one? No. So it starts with a trial. But the second thing that is most important that God is looking for in the trial, and here is the pattern you see in this text, is trust. Isaac, I have never thought Isaac came anywhere near the greatness of Abraham with his faith. There's a lot of things you could condemn about Isaac's life, but this particular text is pretty impressive. Isaac trusts God. And his trust in God is what gets him through it. Now let's talk about trust for a minute because that that word is thrown around quite easily, isn't it? Well, just trust God. (laughs) Well, what does that mean? Just trust God. Trust God means you don't have control and you have to give up control. We're living right now, and if you're like me in my life right now, you feel pretty well in control. You're not aware of the fact that you have no control whatsoever and there is nothing you can really control. That at any moment, all of that can be taken away. And what we hate about a trial is that we have lost control. 
We cannot snap our fingers and make it go away. I don't know how many times that I've counseled somebody in the midst of a trial. And they said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I've tried this. I've tried this. Should I try this? I've tried this. I said, well, try all you want. But one thing you're going to have to acknowledge. The trial will end when God says so and not when you say so. And you are going to have to come to the realization, first and foremost, that this isn't your life. It's God's life. And if he wants to ruin your life for a while, that's his business, not yours. And he has a reason and a purpose for it. And you're going to have to acknowledge that and you're going to have to let that go. Secondly, if you're really going to trust, you have to acknowledge who owns you and who loves you. Anybody here think that Isaac's not going to make it through this trial? When you began the whole text, did you think Isaac wasn't going to make through the trial? <laughs> no, you were going to. That's why we get on Isaac. That's why we get on anybody who's going through a trial when we're reading about it in the Bible. That's why we get on Israel as they're going through the wilderness. We want to crawl all over them because we say, what's the matter with you? God's going to get you there. It's like watching one of those movies where the superstar is right this close to death. And I always sit back and go, he's not going to die. He's the star. The whole program would end if he died. And we're just comfortable with that. But when it's you, it's a little different. So it starts with a trial. It follows with trust. Recognizing my life is not mine, it's his. And he will get me through that. And the third then, at the end of the story, is blessing. Start with trial. You follow with trust. And God always brings us through. Is there a trial that God didn't bring you through? You're like, no, no, I guess he did. That's right. He brought you through the trial. He didn't take the trial away. He didn't end the trial. He didn't go, oh, sorry, I know that's a little tough. He did it with Job. He brought him to chapter 42. Isn't chapter 42 wonderful? It's great. When you're in the midst of a trial, I don't know how long it's going to take. It may take years, but there's a chapter 42. I need to acknowledge and understand that that's the way it is. When, when, when you read in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, remember that text in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where he, he gives 14, 14 pairs, 14 contrasts. There's a time to, of, to be born and there's a time to die. And there's a time of war, and there's a time of peace, and there's, a, and there's a time of hatred, and there's a time of love. And you know what we all want to do? We want to go through and take the seven good parts of those, or the 14 good sides of those, and we want to make that happen in our lives. And what Ecclesiastes say, what Solomon is saying, he says, that's not going to happen. There's going to be both of those that are going to take place in your life. Quit being shocked about it. And chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14 says God made it that way. He made it that way so that you would understand that you don't know what's going to happen after you. Why would you think it would be important not to know what's going to happen after you? Do you love, don't you love the Back to the Future movies? Uh, maybe you didn't. That's one of my favorite. Just love 
Back to the Future number one and three. I can forget to. Uh, but but those, 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 because it's just so fun to think about that if you fouled something up, you can go back and fix it and then the future will be better. Isn't that sweet? And God says, you know, there's a whole reason I did all of this so that you wouldn't know what was going to happen after you. And if you don't know what's going to happen after you, what are you going to have to do? Default, i got to go back to trust. I can't control. I can't make this happen. Now, something that solidifies that pattern, I want you to notice. First, look at verse 3. The Lord said, let me turn to verse 3. The Lord said, sojourn in the land, and I will be with you and will bless you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you. Future tense. Do you notice it? Look on down to verse 24. And here is when, after he has dug a well and finally found a fruitful well, and nobody quarreled about it. Verse 24, And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. What's that? Where's those words? Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. I will be with you. Now, present tense, did you notice I am with you? Now look at verse 28. And he said, and here's Abimelech's comments, we see plainly the Lord has been with you. I will be with you. Have you noticed, Isaac? I am with you based on my promise to Abraham. And then Abimelech comes in and looks him from the outside and he says, it's obvious the Lord has been with you. Everything about what God is doing in our lives is based on I will be with you. I am with you. Can you not see that I have been with you? Now, as typical Bible students that I think most of us are we read a story like this and we go yeah yeah God 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 promised to be with Isaac and God was with Isaac and after all God had to be with Isaac because through Isaac all your offspring are going to be blessed and he's the promised child and all of this so God had to be with Isaac and <coughs> that <coughs> that doesn't have anything to do with me uh, excuse me, would you read this more carefully? Go back to verse 3 again. And he says, I'll bless you. To you and your offspring I will give these lands. And I'll establish the oath I swore to Abraham, your father. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth should be blessed. Which one of those doesn't apply to you? matter of fact, every one of them do. Every one of those three blessings are mentioned in the prophets for those who come to the Messiah. All of it, the great nation promise, the promise, you know, we, we, we get confused with this land promise so many times. Oh, well, you know, we didn't get that plot of land. No, we got the world. And we got an eternal security that he has spoken of in Hebrews 6 when he speaks of that land promise and makes reference to it. And we are the ones who are blessed and are blessing the world. 
How can we miss the idea that whatever was said to Isaac, to Abraham, to Jacob concerning the coming of the kingdom and the Messiah was is completely applicable to us. That every bit of it is said to us in the same kind of way. God made a unilateral promise here. It wasn't if, it's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it based on the promise that I made to Abraham. In John 15 and verse 4 and 5, listen to the words that Jesus said uh, to his disciples. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Who's with you? By whom are you going to bear fruit? On what basis are you going to be successful in God's kingdom? What is, what is your life based on? I will be with you. I am with you. And it is obvious he has been. With us, The last words that Jesus gave before he left the earth and told the, the apostles to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. And what I'm commanding you, I want you to command everybody that you baptize and make a disciple. And his last words, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I've always read it in the old King James Version. It said, lo, you ever notice, remember that? Lo, I am with you. Uh, actually, that word, and it's translated th- this way in the newer versions, Behold, it's an emphatic. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the world. I've always thought that if I were one of those 11 apostles at that moment, and he said, well, I'm about to take off, guys. Heading, you know, back to heaven. Taking the throne. I'm going to be the king. And all of this. And I want you to go and I want you to convert the whole world. And I'm sitting here, and all I know how to do is fish fish out of the Sea of Galilee. And I'm thinking, no, 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 time out, time out, this doesn't work. And at the very end, he says, behold, you know this, I am with you, even to the end of the world. And as Brent talked about this morning, when Jesus... When, when, when God, through an angel, appeared to Joseph and said, Take Mary as your wife, and she's going to have a child, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Do you forget that? I have to remind myself all the time. When the trial comes, God is with me. When the fruit is to be born, God is with me. When, uh, when I need to obey the Lord and do what He said and not trust in myself, God is with me. His presence is with us. We're temples of God. What is a temple? What was the temple in the Old Testament? God dwelling with you. God is with you. In the Hebrew letter, the Hebrew writer says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my help or I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you know those words were quoted to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1? When? What was the occasion then? 
Joshua, you're about to lead these people in the land of Canaan. You're going to conquer all those giants. And I'll be with you. Now, that was quoted in Hebrews to say, he's going to be with us. How many giants are out there in the world that need to be conquered? I am with you. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. And did you notice that when Isaac kept having this quarrel with the Philistines about wells, did you notice how Isaac handled that? They quarreled about the well. Take it. Dug another one. Quarreled about that well. Take it. Dug another one. How do you do that? Would you have done that? I'm going, wait a minute. There's a famine in the land. My guys dug this well. And by the way, I could whoop you if I wanted to. And that's not what Isaac does. He says, take away. You know why he could do that? Because God is with you. What do I got to argue about that for? What do I got to spend all that time arguing about that? God's going to bless me. God's going to make me find a well. And every time, he finds a well. Now here's the other thing. How many chapters in the Bible do you read about where there are one, two, three, four, five wells in a matter of just about 20 verses? Five wells that are dug, and he emphasizes digging these wells. Isn't that weird? He digs another well, and he just keeps digging wells. And then the and Moses keeps saying, take a look at this. He dug a well, he found water. Do you ever not find water? Found water every time. He dug a well, find what found water, and they quarreled about it, and he says, here, you can take that well. Then he digs another well, and he finds water. Here, you can take that well too. He keeps digging wells. Why is God talking about wells so much? God wants to make a big deal about wells because wells represent life because without the wells there's death and only God is the one who can rescue again you and I do not take it seriously we didn't take the famine seriously when we read that we read right over it we don't take the well part very seriously because we walk in our house and we turn a faucet even filtered yuck on the other stuff right we want water turn it on what if you turned it on and there was no water well I just go cruising over there like Okeechobee (laughs) great you don't live in Florida you live in this arid desert area where like where I grew up in California There's no water. What are you going to do? How how good a shovel do you have? How deep can you go with a shovel and hope you find water? See, we don't take it that seriously, but God is the one who provides water. It is a means to life. Every single Wells were always metaphors for blessings. And God promised that he would bless us 
And we need to be content with what he's given. Remember what he said in Matthew 6? He said, don't worry. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. I've been disturbed terribly over the last couple of years. Sometimes with myself. And sometimes with some of my brothers and sisters with the extraordinary, extraordinary fear of dying. Of a dumb virus. Isaac was in the same situation. And it is so amazing to me to think about that and just read what the Hebrew writer said about the reason Jesus came and did what he did in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are not slaves any longer. We're not slaves to this life. We're not slaves to the to a matter of dying. We're not slaves to that. We have been released from the power of death. And the one who is the who is the enemy has been conquered. And death is a victory, as Paul said, not a defeat. Oh sure. Be silly and foolish not to be careful. But to live in fear and to sacrifice serving God and serving God with one another and sharing the gospel with others. I've known Christians to criticize those who were going and sharing the gospel with somebody who might infect you. Oh, let me die and then live. It's foolishness. We have been delivered from that. Final text. Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah talks about the greatest, the greatest of all wells. Isaiah chapter 12, and you might notice, if you haven't seen this before, that Isaiah 12 comes after Isaiah 11. And that's really important. Because Isaiah 11 is about the coming of the Messiah and the release of Touch something here, sorry. <laughs> and the release of us from bondage and the new Exodus. And in chapter 12, here's our response that the Lord predicts. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be 
made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Do not be surprised when the trial comes. The trial will be there as long as God desires the trial to be there. Trust. Do not fear because he is with you. Trust. And he will bring you through to the other side. Blessing. God has always done it. He always will do it. Because he's never lied and he will never go back on his word. I need to work on that. Like we all do. Especially when the fear comes in. No more of that. No more of that. Do not be anxious for anything. But by prayer and supplication, let your request be known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We're going to sing a song right now. If there's any way we can help you in your service to God, we'd be glad to do so. You can talk to one of us afterwards. About together we stand while we sing.